Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get started here a little bit before our start time. That way I uh, inflict as little time possible on the advertising part of this uh, lecture today. Um, so my name is Kevin. I am uh, here on behalf of the Institute of World Politics, in whose building you are currently in. We are in graduate school of statecraft and national security affairs, focusing on teaching all the elements of national power. I uh, see a few familiar faces in this room, uh, some of whom have some experience here at the Institute of World Politics, so if you have any questions, please direct them towards me or a friendly face in this building. <clears throat> so without further ado, I just want to give you a brief um, <clears throat> a description of uh, today's event, the title of the event, and uh, as well a brief background about our speaker, who has uh, explicitly asked that my remarks in this area be short, so I will do my best to uh, oblige. So today's speech is titled Nuclear Deterrence in the 21st Century, featuring um, our speaker Rebecca Heinrichs. Uh, she has now been here several times, and so we have um, the doubly distinguished pleasure of having you back again. Thank you for coming back. <clears throat> I'll say very briefly, um, Rebecca is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where she provides research and commentary on a range of national security issues and specializes in nuclear deterrence. <laughs> missile defense and counter-proliferation. So, timely topic, great speaker, and a great privilege to have you all out here yet again, and for those new faces the first time. Thank you, and I'll see the floor to you. Well, hello everyone. Thank you so much for um, coming out right before Thanksgiving break. Uh, and spending your evening when you could be headed home uh, to, to think about this subject and then um, hopefully to ask some good questions afterwards and then I'm, I plan on leaving a good amount of time here at the end so that we can have a discussion. Um, so I'm going to say some things that are um, um, uh, somewhat controversial depending on who's in the audience and then, um, and but hopefully I uh, of get you thinking about this, get you thinking about the subject of nuclear weapons and how they fit into the current um, global threats um, that we, that the context, the global threats that we face today. And then if there's anything, you know, that, that sparks your interest or anything that I don't mention directly but makes you think about, um, especially with what's been in the news um, uh, regarding, you know, the president's uh, sole authority to uh, determine when to launch nuclear weapons, et cetera, then we can talk about that as well. Um, that's the good news, bad news about, uh, about what's been in the news lately. I'm, on the one hand, I'm, I'm disappointed that, um, that the issue of nuclear weapons and whether or not the president has the sole authority to uh, direct their employment or not, um, you know, it's, it's disappointing to see that this issue has been being politicized, in my view. On the one hand, on the other hand, I'm thrilled that people are actually having a conversation about nuclear weapons and um, uh, how they actually serve um, U.S. interests today. So the topic of my talk is, um, is uh, nuclear deterrence in the 21st century. And how, uh, how is it different today than it was um, um, given the threats in previous years? And so I hope to lay out just a few principles for you to think about um, as we think about nuclear weapons. Um, the, the Trump administration is preparing right now what is called the Nuclear Posture Review. That's going to come out uh, at the beginning of the year. And the last time the country had a Nuclear Posture Review was in 2010, during the Obama administration. And this document um, serves as um, laying out U.S. policy on nuclear weapons. Um, so you can imagine 
um, as you think, you all are, many of your grad students here, you know, whenever these big policy documents come out from the, you know, on behalf of the U.S. government, there are multiple audiences. The, the, the audience is not just the Pentagon. The audience is not just Congress. The audience, of course, our adversaries are going to be looking at these documents. Our, um, our allies are going to be looking at these documents. And so they're critically important for um, communicating uh, what the United States plans to do um, and how it is thinking about um, its nuclear weapons. So first and foremost, um, what is the purpose of our nuclear weapons? The purpose of U.S. nuclear weapons is to deter what? War. Okay? And not just nuclear war. We purposely leave that ambiguous. We don't say just nuclear war. As a matter of fact, during the previous administration, we had an, administ an, an administration that was um, very determined to move the United States away from relying on nuclear weapons in our, in our overall defense strategy. Um, this was an administration that came out in Prague, and the president gave his big Prague speech and said that he wanted, he wanted to lead the world down a path to zero nuclear weapons um, in President Obama's defense. Um, he didn't say that we were going to get rid of the world's nuclear weapons in his own term. He readily admitted that wasn't going to happen probably in his lifetime, but this was his goal. And uh, what nuclear weapons in the world does the U.S. government have the most control over? Our own. So if you want to lower the world's nuclear weapons, whose do you get rid of? Well, if you're President Obama, you can get rid of our own. That's what he did. Um, he pursued the New START Treaty with the Russian Federation, and he succeeded in, in convincing the Senate to, to ratify that treaty, and it did. Um, it did. The Obama administration did so um, by promising the U.S. Senate that we would fully modernize the nuclear forces that we would have left over um, when we comply with the New START Treaty, and it, and it to its credit, um, provided a lot of uh, uh, money towards that end, not sufficient in, in my view, but but it did it did move in that direction and and did sort of hold the line um, in terms of what's needed for for a um, robust nuclear deterrent, and that meant um, all three legs of what is called the U.S. nuclear triad: uh, land, sea, and and air. Um, uh, but, but, but President Obama was determined to, to lower the number of the world's nuclear weapons, and so it, he set to do that with the U.S. nuclear weapons. And then the nuclear posture review did reflect that to some degree in terms of some of the changes it made. Um, one of the things I think is critically important um, to point out, because right now um, this administration has been getting a lot of negative um, coverage and a lot of negative criticism for... Um, for um, the president's seeming willingness and favor towards his willingness to, to think about nuclear weapons. His, his, um, uh, he's inclined to think about it. He talked about modernizing our nuclear force, having the best, most robust force we can possibly have, et cetera, and, and not, um, not being explicit about not being the first country to employ nuclear weapons, um, sort of keeping that very ambiguous. That is not new. Uh, during the Obama administration, the Nuclear Posture Review did not include um, uh, explicitly saying that the United States would only use nuclear weapons in response to attacks. So there, we didn't change this. We didn't. We didn't have a no first use policy. Um, and the reason for that is, if you explicitly state that the United States is not going to be the first to use nuclear weapons, or that we're only going to use nuclear weapons in response to nuclear weapons, you you can incentivize or, or create um, possibly optimism in the minds of our adversaries that the only weapons they could use that could possibly uh, 
uh, elicit a, a nuclear response from the United States or nuclear? Well, there's also chemical, biological, and massive chemical uh, weapons that our adversaries have. And so if we explicitly say we're only going to use them in, in response to nuclear weapons, then you might actually incentivize or create this, this optimism in the minds of our adversaries that we can use anything short of, that they can use anything short of that, and it won't, it won't elicit a nuclear response from the United States. And um, because we don't want to do that, even the Obama administration did not include that um, change during, during its term. And so the, the Trump administration, um, I fully expect to keep in line with that and not include anything like that in the nuclear posture review. Um, so, um, so there is this sort of great, this, this consensus that has developed over previous, over past administrations, Democrats and Republicans, on, on sort of what nuclear weapons are, are generally for, and they are to deter war. Um, so one of my pet peeves I like to, to say right off the bat is, you know, people say, well, uh, this, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee just had a whole hearing about whether or not the president is the, has the sole authority to, to direct the use of nuclear weapons. We are using nuclear weapons right now, okay? We're using them now. When we go to sleep, we're using them. When we wake up tomorrow, we're using them. Nuclear weapons are there. The United States nuclear force is there to create a calculation or to cause our, our enemies, our adversaries, to, to calculate that whatever action they might deem in their own interests that could possibly elicit a response from the United States that would include nuclear weapons is not worth the cost. That's why we have them. They're also there to assure our, our allies. Um, the United States has um, this policy of uh, we, we, don't, we do not want nuclear weapons to proliferate to other countries that do not per currently possess them. So um, we extend a nuclear umbrella to South Korea, to Japan, to our NATO allies. And the, and, and, um, the promise there is that um, they don't need to, um, you know, in the case of Japan and South Korea, they don't need to have their own nuclear um, weapons uh, because the United States offers a nuclear assurance on their behalf, and that includes some NATO countries as well. And, of course, um, NATO, uh, Article 5 of, uh, of NATO requires that any time one of our allies is attacked, the United States would behave as though, you know, we were attacked ourselves, and that's the, that's the commitment we have to, to NATO alliance as well. Um, and there are other NATO countries that, of course, don't have their own nuclear weapons that the United States provides an umbrella. Um, and um, so, so what's different today? What is different today, and what is the nuclear chem bio landscape today that the, that the United States finds itself in? And, and are we to the point um, where some of our anti-nuclear friends um, like to say where the United States can sort of back off nuclear weapons more, or um, I don't know if you all keep up with how much nuclear weapons cost. The, the, um, there's just a government report that came out that with new numbers saying that over the next 30 years um, that the U.S. nuclear triad is going to cost uh, uh, the American taxpayer $1.2 trillion with a T dollars to, um, to operate and maintain and modernize the nuclear triad that we have today. Um, and so that number often gets thrown around saying, this thing is, why do we even have this thing anymore? And is it necessary? Um, so, uh, so with that in mind, that they're meant to deter our adversaries and our, our enemies and to assure our allies, it's important to take a look at what's happening then across, across the globe. And I'll start with um, the Russian Federation. 
Um, the Russian Federation, as the United States has moved away from relying on nuclear weapons in our um, overall defense strategy, the Russian Federation has actually moved nuclear weapons front and center to its nuclear strategy. Uh, so um, it, it got a little bit more coverage uh, in, in the middle of the Obama administration in the media, and then it sort of died off again, and now I barely ever hear it. But the Russian senior Russian leadership uses uh, nuclear saber rattling fairly frequently. Um, it, it does so specifically. It's called NATO, the NATO alliance. It's number one geopolitical foe. It has moved nuclear capable um, uh, delivery systems to the border of Poland. Uh, it has threatened preemptive nuclear use on purely defensive deployments that the United States has made and has promised to make in Europe, including the missile defense system, the Aegis Ashore site, um, uh, the systems that complement one another to, to for Aegis Ashore, including the radar and the actual interceptors will be in Poland and the Czech Republic. And Russia has threatened to, to use force against those preemptively. Russia is flying um, nuclear-capable bombers in NATO airspace. Um, it has... Um, uh, it does wargaming exercises very fairly um, regularly uh, against what is obviously um, a U.S. threat um, from the Russian perspective. And, uh, and it is pouring lots of resources into its own nuclear program. And when the Russians modernize their nuclear force, it's not like the way the United States does it. When we, when we modernize our own force, we're talking about um, patching everything up. We're trying to make it um, take all of the nuclear weapons, at least to this day, that we have. And our old ICBMs, our Miniman 3s, we're trying to, we just want them to have to, um, uh, to provide that same capability. We have a new um, ICBM that, that we hope to replace the Miniman 3 with, what's called the ground-based strategic, um, the GBSD system. Um, that strategic deterrent. Uh, what the Russians do is the Russians are creating new um, nuclear weapons. Uh, so they have a very robust uh, nuclear modernization enterprise. And so it's very different than the way the United States does. The United States doesn't put multiple warheads on our ICBMs. It's called MIRVing, the Russians MIRV. Uh, so they have a, just a very active nuclear force. They also have uh, 10 short-range tactical, although there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon, but when I say tactical, I mean short range for the European theater, designed for the European theater. They have 10 of those for every one that the United States has. Um, and so they, they, they have that great advantage to the United States um, in the theater that's most important to Russia, which is right, um, right in its backyard. And so, and so the Russians have really um, moved forward in terms of relying on nuclear weapons. The Russians have also threatened in their military doctrine, and U.S. generals have testified to this in open hearings, um, for those who are interested, um, they've also made this um, very well known that the, the, that the Russian military is willing to employ nuclear weapons in a purely conventional conflict that NATO might, um, uh, might that the Russians might view that the NATO is posing to it, that they might just use a nuclear weapon in order to get the, get the NATO alliance to just quickly back off. It's called escalate to de-escalate. Uh, so they're, they're sort of lowering the threshold of when they might consider, and we're not even talking about like a massive scale war, they're talking about um, regional conflict that the Russians just want, the, that want NATO to sort of back off so they might use a nuclear weapon to get, to get the uh, NATO alliance um, to back away. So you can see that nuclear weapons are just playing a much larger role for the Russians. Um, then of course you can move over to, to, to China, um, our other um, uh, near peer, or peer, depending on who you talk to. Um, uh, 
partner or frenemy, as you might call it, however you want to describe or characterize China. Um, and the Chinese have a have a nuclear force as well. Um, it's not as grand, not as large in scale as what the Russians have or the United States has, but they are um, building delivery systems that are highly sophisticated, meant to target uh, U.S. assets as well. Um, and then you can talk about what is traditionally called rogue state actors. Obviously, we have this problem in, um, in, in North Korea that's making all the noise right now, where Kim Jong-un is looking to acquire, it already has nuclear capability, six nuclear tests, uh, missile for, massive missile force. In this past summer, successfully tested for the first time ever um, a, a test of an ICBM that demonstrated that it does have the range to launch a missile with the, that can reach the United States. Um, it has also done so by um, testing space launches or satellite launches successfully on its own. A satellite launch is just the same thing as an ICBM launch, um, short of the, the challenging te um, technology to re-enter the atmosphere, which is what the, the warhead would have to do when it descends back into the atmosphere. Um, so it, the, the Kim, Kim in North Korea has been working towards having this capability as well. Um, and then you look over at uh, Iran and... Um, whether or not, I won't go into the details of the Iran deal, except just to say the purpose of the Iran deal, according to the Obama administration, was to uh, prevent Iran from finally racing towards having a nuclear weapons capability. But even according to President Obama himself, even if the Iran deal works perfectly as planned, all it really did was move a three-month breakout timeline of when the Iranians could break out and have a nuclear capability, nuclear weapons capability. It just bumped it from three months to one year. Okay, that's President Obama's own words. So I won't even disagree with sort of uh, the very, um, uh, what I would consider way overly optimistic um, case of, of this actually playing out as planned. But even if you just go by his own, his own words and how he viewed the, viewed the deal, we've only, we've only delayed it by a little bit. And meanwhile, it doesn't, it doesn't restrict Iran's uh, ballistic missile program even though Iran's ballistic missile program is still illicit, it's long-range program, it's not included in the Iran deal, which is why the Iranians can con continue testing ballistic missiles that doesn't violate the Iran deal. The missiles are the hard part, okay? So just like in North Korea, it had the nuclear weapons capability for a long time. Why all of a sudden is North Korea in the news right now? It's its missile program. Okay, it's the, the nuclear program. It's had that for a while, but... but the, you need two parts, two parts to actually threaten the United States, uh, a country, a country like North Korea and Iran. And it's the it's the payload, it's the nuclear payload, and getting it small enough or miniaturized to actually deliver it on a missile. And then you need the missile capability, and that and the missile capability is very very hard to do, um, comparatively. And uh, and that's what that's what North Korea has been working on. And you know over the years, you know I've spent some time working um, for a congressman. And then, and then lots of time now in, in think tank world, watching this, watching the North Koreans, and what they do is they launch a missile, and it blows up on the launch pad, and then everybody says, oh, look, the North Koreans, they think they can launch a missile. You know, and everyone laughs about how ridiculous the North Koreans are and how they're never going to be sophisticated, or it's going to be years and years and years before the North Koreans are going to figure it out. But every time they launch a missile, um, they learned from their mistakes, they, they took that technology, they adapted it to their program, and they applied it, and then they got another, they, got another, um, they made progress on it. So that's what North Korea's been doing. Well, and we, I haven't even talked about the other nuclear weapon states, but I want to talk about those right now. 
the reason that they have them, the reason that they have pursued them, these technologies, is because it enables countries which much, with much smaller uh, economies than the United States, much smaller militaries, like North Korea, to just look at North Korea for a minute, it enables them to actually coerce and blackmail the United States of America with our massive military bigger than the world has ever seen. Um, it, it enables them to coerce and blackmail the United States if it's able to hold American cities at risk of a nuclear attack. So that's its goal. It's the cheapest, it's the most cost-effective way for it to do that. And, and so what I have argued that in the 21st century, it used to be at the height of the Cold War, the height of the Cold War, it was the United States and the Soviet Union. And, um, and we had this doctrine called mutually assured destruction that we had with the Russians uh, or the Soviets, where if they were to launch a nuclear weapon at the United States, they were guaranteed to have one coming right back at them, and then everybody would die. It's called mutually assured destruction, or MAD. Policy was considered crazy. And so you had Ronald Reagan, who gave this great SDI speech, the Strategic Defense Initiative, where he talked about how, why not have a world in which, rather than we're just threatening one another with nuclear annihilation, you can actually have defensive systems. And so then that's whenever we start, began pursuing, um, um, just in research only, this program to, for, for a purely defensive uh, um, system. So mutually assured destruction was what worked with the Soviet Union for a time, and until the Soviet Union collapsed. Today, with all of the different threats that I just laid out, and very different, uh, very different countries, the Chinese have very, very different national interests than the Russians. The North Koreans have very, very different national interests than the Iranians. And each regime is run by different Different individuals, and this is not a math problem. Nuclear deterrence is not a math problem. Like, you know, I, was on a, I had a phone conversation today in which somebody was talking about how um, all these nuclear powers act, acting rationally. And are, are, these, are these powers rational? And is Kim Jong-un rational? I would say yes to that question. But um, rational based on the assumptions and premises that he has, not that we have. In other words... Kim Jong-un is going to behave from his perspective of what is in his own national interests. That may not be what the United States thinks is his own interests, or what the United States thinks he ought to do in order to further his own interests, even if we bought into what he thinks is his own interests. Does that make sense? Americans have this tendency to think that everybody in the world is going to behave like an American. We would never do that. That's ridiculous. That will cause great loss of human life. Other countries care a lot less about loss of human life than the United States of America. Okay, a country like North Korea that would rather starve its own people than give up its nuclear missile program is not a country that's worried about civilian casualties. Okay, um, I don't know if y'all are following just aside because we've been thinking about this guy a lot in my house, but. Um, there's recently a North Korean soldier that just made a run for it. Did you see that? He made a run for it, and, um, and it looks like he might live. Um, he was shot six or seven times as he, as he um, ran across uh, um, the border there. And as the surgeon is you know, doing surgery on him, now that he, he's been able to, he's, he found just um, indications of terrible malnutrition and parasites um, inside it. And this is a soldier that worked for the North Korean regime. So, I mean, this is a, um, 
and I just I pray he makes it. I would love for this I would love for this guy to live the rest of his life um, in freedom in, in South Korea or the United States, wherever he wants to be. But um, the the point is, this is not a regime that that shares the same values as the United States of America. And that goes that, that that's this. I, I can say the same thing across across the globe. Um, the Iranians don't have the same values that Americans have. They have different national interests than the United States has. It's the same with the Russians. It's the same with the Chinese. Um, and so, when the United States thinks of what kind of nuclear force do we need to have today, I offer these few these few um, uh, points. One, um, we need to move away from this idea that the goal is to shrink the U.S. nuclear force as a primary, uh, as, a, as a sort of a primary motivator when we're thinking about our nuclear force structure. We need to get away from this idea that cost should motivate us in terms of what kind of force structure we should have. Okay? So that's what we should not do. What we should do is look at the world, look at what our current threats are and what our potential threats just above the horizon might be. We can't just look at today and plan for today. We have to plan for tomorrow and develop a nuclear force structure that maximizes the options before the president, whoever that is, Republican, Democrat, Joe Biden, or Nikki Haley, or Donald Trump, or Kamala Harris, or who else is, is being rumored? Paul Ryan, I don't know. Regardless of who, who, who the president is going to be in the future, we need to provide the President of the United States with maximum options to handle the threats before us. The nuclear force has to be flexible so that we're not intentionally constraining the President. He needs to have a flexible, he or she needs to have a flexible nuclear force that is safe and reliable and credible to deter our adversaries and assure our allies. You start from there, you work back. Go back to the cost for a second. $1.2 trillion over 30 years to operate and sustain and modernize the nuclear triad, which, oh, by the way, even when the Obama administration wanted to move down to lower numbers, um, he, would, he would have loved to have gotten rid of one of the legs of the triad if he could have. Um, and he just couldn't do it. He, he sought advice and counsel, and he tried, you know, and the administration would love to have, who have gone down, and they, and they all, at the time, to the Obama administration's credit, maintained all three legs of the triad. Um, because that provides us with the most uh, credible nuclear deterrent that our commanders have been able to agree on. And so that, that will stay through um, the foreseeable future. Um, $1.2 trillion over 30 years is about six, six, half a dozen, six percent of the total military budget. It's a pretty good bargain, if you ask me. And those numbers, I'm using like the high numbers. These are the high numbers. If you do, there's been other reports, the Air Force has done different, um, uh, different number crunching and gotten down to lower numbers. Um, but whenever you think about in terms of what the, what the purpose of the federal government is, not what we'd like it to do or the goodie bag stuff, but just the basic um, fundamental purpose of the federal government is to provide the common defense um, of the American people. It's a pretty good bargain. Um, that's about a cost. So you want to figure out what we need as a matter of policy to protect the American people, and then you want to move back from there. Um, because again, uh, the goal is peace and deterring war and assuring our allies. It is not an ideologically driven goal of decreasing the world's number of nuclear weapons or of finding budget cuts. 
There's plenty of other things in the budget that are completely superfluous that we can get rid of before we get rid of the actual backbone of, our, um, of what the Department of Defense uses to, to provide protection of the American people. And, and the last point I'll make then is um, uh, because these things change, you know, th these threats change. In the nuclear posture review in 2010, one of the things that the Obama officials looked at when it determined what was needed for our nuclear force structure was um, the current threats, and it, and it declared that um, the United States was no longer an adversary of Russia. So, um, you know, which I find remarkable that everybody forgets that that was said, because you would think today that we've been at war with Russia since forever, and the Trump administration is the first administration to ever say that we were not at war with Russia. Um, it was the Obama administration who, in fact, um, really tried to have this reset with Russia. And one of the things it declared in the nuclear posture review was that because Russia was no longer this Cold War adversary of the United States, that we didn't need to have as many nuclear weapons as we did at the height of the Cold War, and that we could go down. So we cut our nuclear forces um, significantly under the New START Treaty. Um, and I would just caution, um, I have been, I, I have not argued that the United States abrogate that treaty. I don't think that we should do that. Um, it will be up again for uh, reauthorization or an extension, and I think that the administration should take a look at it and see if it makes sense to do so at the time. Um, but, um, but it makes no sense at all to be motivated to, to cut U.S. nuclear weapons um, simply out of an ideological or emotional uh, uh, motivation that nuclear weapons are inherently bad. Uh, nuclear weapons are there, um, again, in this very complex uh, global threat environment that the United States is in now. Um, uh, they're, they're there for, for, for uh, they're, they are weapons of peace. Um, I know it's a paradox, but that's what they are. And so we need to make sure that we're not um, making our force just based on the current um, threat situation and not uh, making sure that it's flexible to respond to the threats of, of tomorrow um, and beyond. So I'm, I'm going to...